As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. India had never scored a point before the 2009 Belgian Grand Prix. Then out of nowhere, Giancarlo Fisichella gave the team its first pole position and arguably should have won the race. In the end, that honour went to Kimi Raikkonen with a bit of help from his Ferrari's Kurs, while down the order, Jensen Button's title challenge appeared to be crumbling, just as his Braun team's future was being secretly secured behind the scenes with Mercedes. Talking of secrets, it's often forgotten that this was the weekend when the wheels were put in motion to bust Renault for the 2008 Singapore Grand Prix scandal involving Nelson Piquet. And while we'd need a whole episode to go into that topic properly, we will touch on it at the end here. As those of you who know your F1 engine's rule cycles will have worked out, Bring Back V10s is venturing into the V8 era for the second time in Series 7. And to help me, Glenn Freeman, do that, we have Ed Straw, who was at Spa that weekend, and Ben Anderson, who is making his first appearance of the series. So, Ben, we'll come to you first. When you think back to Spa 2009, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, it has to be the almost nearly won the race effort from Fisichella in the the Force India, his day of days, I guess, um, completely out of the blue for me as someone at that time who was reporting on British Formula 3 for Autosport. So some years away yet from being inside the F1 paddock. Yeah, I was I was startled. Um, and But for the curves you mentioned on the Ferrari and Spa being kind of Kimi Raikkonen's best track, probably, he probably would have done it. Yeah, who were the stars of that year's British F3 grid? Who were you covering? Uh, Daniel Ricciardo. Um, bad. Champion, yeah. Um, he, it was a controversial season. He was up against uh, um, Walter Grubmuller and his dad and the high-tech team. They spent loads and loads of money trying to win that championship. And they also hired Renga van der Zand, who's, I think, basically team a sports order season. Yeah, team order season, yeah. So you had uh, Renga basically trying to help Grubmuller win the championship and Ricardo kind of racing two cars at once in what was meant to be a driver's championship. So, yeah, quite fun to report on that one. And, uh, yeah, obviously Daniel went on to Formula One and to great success. So, um, yeah, it was a fun way to start my career out. Ed, as I mentioned, you were there at Spa. What's your standout memory? 
It's actually an irrelevant comedy moment that didn't matter in the slightest. For some Amazing. inexplicable reason, it's lodged in my mind. This was, of course, the second of Luca Badoa's ill-starred outings for Ferrari. And he briefly claimed fastest lap under that early safety car. So it's obviously a slow cruising <laughs> lap. But I just remember that creating mirth in the media centre. Absolutely shouldn't be my standout memory. But for some reason, that's just what I think of. That's incredible. <laughs> well, at least he went purple on the timing screens at, at some point. Let's hear some memories for our audience now. Reading through all the tweets you send us is becoming one of my favourite parts of putting these shows together. Master says any answer other than Fissy Keller is wrong. And he adds that he was there that weekend and it was pretty surreal when Fissy got pole. Let's pile through some more Fissy Keller mentions. Michael Moyle says uh, it was Fissy Keller's greatest weekend. Eric Barnes says Fissy proved he was still a decent driver and had plenty to offer. Brian Glennon says it was the first but certainly not last moment of Force India punching several leagues above its weight. And Arjun Singh says this was the only race he managed to get his granddad to watch with him because he told him the Indian team could actually win it. Lots of people were annoyed that Raikkonen beat Fissy Keller because his Ferrari had Kurz. Nick Carter says Fissy Keller was robbed by Kurz. Andy Campbell says Kurz cost us a possible Force India win. James Lee says Kurz was this new and novel thing that made such a difference. And Scuderia Tifosi says how much I hated the only time that season where Kurz was actually worth something. Mr. Liam remembers Kimmy going wider than wide at La Source at the start, as does Matt White, Christopher Foxen and Jay. We will talk about that. Kimmy's uh, other trick that he pulled in the beginning of this race. Quite a few mentions for Jensen Button's miserable weekend and the sight of him and Lewis Hamilton stood next to the barriers after they were both involved in collisions on the first lap. James Thomas says it was a real FFS moment for Lewis and Jensen fans. Danny Elliott remembers the TV camera focusing in on Button and Hamilton standing behind the barriers. Waleed also picked this and Mark Ray saw that shunt from trackside and even sent us a picture of Button getting out of his car. Greg Ankers says, wondering if Jensen was going to blow his title hopes. And James Nicholson says, as a huge JB fan, I was starting to get seriously concerned. Finally, as Ed did, let's mention Luca Badoa. James says Badoa was terrible. Lots of you pointed out that Ferrari finished first and last in this race. Uh, Malta Gutlinger says what was supposed to be a reward became a nightmare. Justin says Badoa was absolutely out of his depth. Tom Arnold simply says Badoa was terrible. Uh, we've already had that from James as well. And Ben Denden remembers cheering for poor Luca Badoa on the driver's parade because Badoa was stood all alone on the big trailer looking kind of sad. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, uh, we're getting closer to the end of the series, so make sure you get your questions in to ask us anything about F1's V10 era from 1989 to 2005, and we'll answer as many as we can before the series is over. Submit your question using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or email BringBackV10s at the-race.com. As always, you can get early access to every episode and listen ad-free if you are part of the Race Members Club. To find out what other benefits you get from the race and to sign up, head to the-race.com forward slash members club. And lastly, if you'd love to have hundreds of like-minded fans of Classic F1 to talk to on social media, then join the Bring Back V10's Twitter community. Head to the Communities tab on your Twitter app or your browser and search for Bring Back V10s. It's not just a place to discuss the show. Um, you can talk about anything really to do with old F1 and it's developing into a really fun place to visit. Plus, Ed and I are in there too, so we'll occasionally chime in. 
Even though it's 2009, let's start by talking about Michael Schumacher. The seven-time world champion had backed out of making a comeback to replace the injured Felipe Massa over the summer because of long-standing neck problems. But when word got out that he was still working on his fitness, speculation mounted that he could still get behind the wheel later in the season. And some of our respondents on Twitter actually said that they saw Schumacher comeback caps and heard rumours about he was going to do Monza and they were all getting excited about it. Ferrari team boss Stefano Domenicali ruled this out in the Italian press at the Belgian Grand Prix, although he said he was sure Schumacher would have been competitive if he came back. Ed, by this point... We know the the Ferrari comeback's off. Do we think that any training Schumacher was doing was perhaps because he'd realised he wasn't done with F1 yet? Yeah, I think certainly if he wasn't already keen on the idea before that Ferrari possibility came up, once he had to then abandon it because it was formally going to happen before he had to back out, I think at that point, he would have known 100% that he wanted to do it. Even in retirement, he still occasionally turned up testing Ferrari F1 cars, although he hadn't run since the Barcelona test in April the previous year because of that in-season testing ban. But I'll have my first digression at this moment because I think it is worth mentioning the the, the factors that led to him not happening because obviously he was competing in, in superbike racing and he'd had that big crash in February at the Cartagena circuit. It was reported that he'd gone to hospital at the time, but it was all played down. But it was actually quite a serious crash. And those were the the fitness problems. It was recovering from that properly, because if you can find the odd distant, grainy image of the crash, and basically he had a fairly high speed off and sort of landed on his head. And they said in a press conference where they explained why the Ferrari return was off, that he'd done a lot of damage to one of the carotid arteries. Those are the, the two sort of main arteries that feed the brain. So... You can imagine if you do both of them what the outcome would be. I remember asking Schumacher some years later about a sort of suggestion I'd heard that if he didn't have that residual fitness and his ongoing training regime, that it could have been a, a much worse outcome. So, yeah, obviously he knew he had to put some more fitness work in to recover from that. But I think if he hadn't had that crash, the fitness would have been fine because he was still training hard. But returning to the question, oh, good. I think it was clear he did want to return to F1 it may have been by this stage he knew the Mercedes possibility was on the horizon as well. So I think this was the point where he certainly went full bore on trying to get the fitness there. And certainly the fact that he did later return showed that he wasn't finished with F1, was he? And he he wanted to compete. If he didn't want to compete, he wouldn't have been throwing himself off motorbikes every now and again at that point. Yeah, exactly. I always felt like he never really wanted to stop. You know, the whole situation of his retirement from Ferrari was kind of enforced and he was still obviously hanging around. I think he was an ambassador or consultant, wasn't he, at this stage for them anyway. And then the very fact that he's, you know, chucking himself off of motorbikes, which is a very silly thing to be be doing, um, you know, when you've when you're that age and you haven't got the the background in in bike racing. I know, you know, we've seen lots of subsequent F1 MotoGP rider driver swaps, but it's one thing to kind of have that kind of show run, another one to try and compete seriously. I think he was, even at the time, we kind of got a sense he was very lucky to get away with that accident. And to me, that just smacked of somebody who wasn't done with racing at all. So the fact that he was on the fringes and looking to come back to Formula 1, I can very much believe that he was itching, basically, to get back in any way he could. I love that, Ed, you felt you needed to tell us that your first answer of the show was going to involve your first digression. Kind of take that as a given, (laughs) but uh, it was a good digression. Uh, one day we'll have to cover, uh, maybe maybe on the race website, we can cover Schumacher's superbike exploits. 
Domenicali seemed to use the Schumacher prospect as a reason to bring third cars back onto the agenda. In an interview with The Times, he admitted Ferrari were pushing for the big teams to be able to run third cars because, in his words, that's what people want. And he said it was correct to say that Ferrari could run Schumacher in that scenario. Domenicali added, with respect to the, to the smaller teams, the value of F1 is to have good drivers, great personalities in good cars. McLaren's Martin Whitmarsh was a bit more sympathetic to the smaller teams. He said McLaren were not against the idea of third cars, but he added, we need to be sensitive to the fact that if there were three Brawns, three Red Bulls and three McLarens here, then it doesn't make it easier for the small teams. His view was that the big teams should only run third cars if grid numbers go down, or perhaps if the third cars were used for rookie drivers. He said, if it's about getting the best three drivers into the best three cars, I'm not sure that adds to the spectacle. Unsurprisingly, the small teams weren't keen on this idea at all. Frank Williams was one to say he would block any push for third cars because it wasn't necessary. Ben, has the idea of third cars ever appealed to you in F1? Well, the heart says very much yes. You know, when you instinctively think about it, yeah, more drivers in top cars all going at it at the front. Yeah, brilliant. You know, who cares about the tuggy cars at the back or somebody being wasted in one of those? But I always feel, I feel basically in this debate, you've got Domenicali making that point and then Whitmarsh kind of making the more sensible, logical head rules the heart approach or argument although I'm amused that he says that putting a third McLaren at that stage would make a, a big difference to the smaller teams because McLaren were basically near the back in that season for a lot of it <laughs> so yeah I'm not sure where he's coming from but it's all about unintended con consequences you know I mentioned British Formula 3 at the start of the episode and that championship actually went through a period while I was covering it whereby top teams okay, it was single make, but they were running more and more drivers because obviously the drivers wanted to go with the most successful team. And it just squeezed the smaller teams into running fewer cars, one car. And what you end up with is just a homogenized situation where basically everyone's racing the same thing and you would snuff out those smaller teams. And then eventually you would snuff out the smaller of the bigger teams who are running the third cars. So a slippery slope, basically, and you would not end up in a situation like we have now where you've got franchise teams and everyone with a kind of sensible value that they can protect and invest season after season to try and be competitive. I'd love to know what Domenicali thinks of uh, screwing over the small teams now in his uh, with his F1 hat on. <laughs> let's get let's, let's stick uh, with Ferrari, though, because while Luca Badoa was filling in for Massa at this stage and Schumacher had been emphatically ruled out, there were still other rumours flying around. Uh, Giancarlo Fisichella was being linked to the seat, which we know he would eventually get. Um, test driver Marc Genet expressed his disappointment at not being called up ahead of Badoa. And a bit further afield... Uh, none other than MotoGP legend Valentino Rossi said he spoke to Ferrari as well. Rossi had, of course, tested Ferraris in the past, and he talked publicly about this at the Misano MotoGP round, saying he spoke with Domenicali about doing the Italian Grand Prix. But he said there were two big problems, the first being his lack of neck strength, and the second was that he didn't need the added stress of trying to make his F1 debut while fighting for another MotoGP title. Rossi also said it would be impossible just to jump into an F1 weekend without a proper test programme beforehand. Ed, do you think Rossi was smart to avoid doing this? 
Yeah, I think from the perspective of it, both detracting from his MotoGP antics and the fact he'd have been desperately underprepared, yeah, it was very sensible to avoid. If someone of Luca Badoa's experience could struggle so badly, someone who had six figures worth of mileage in terms of kilometres in F1 cars, imagine how tough it would have been for Rossi. However, it would have been incredible to see, wouldn't it? to see this modern John Surtees transition, even just as a, a one-off. And, and if he'd struggled, it wouldn't have been because of any shortfall on his, far, on his part, would it? Because he's a top bike racer trying to jump into an F1 car underprepared. So it would have been wonderful to see it happen. And I'm sure there'd have been a Bring Back V10's episode all about it had it happened. What a story that would have been. So it's one of those things of, to uh, to coin the phrase Ben was uh, using, yeah, the, the, the head says definitely wise not to do it. The heart says what a shame he didn't. Yeah, good summary. Uh, talking of motorsport legends outside of F1, rally icon Sebastian Loeb was being linked to making his debut in the season-ending Abu Dhabi Grand Prix with Toro Rosso. This had come about after he'd initially tested a Red Bull as a bit of fun for a promotional opportunity. But by this stage in 2009, efforts were being made to see if he could get an F1 super licence. That would eventually fail. I think officially it was ruled out about a month after this. But at this point of the season, it was still a possibility. Loeb told French newspaper L'Equipe that he was about to sign a new WRC contract with Citroën, but if the Abu Dhabi chance didn't come off, he would still be interested in trying to do some F1 races in 2010. Loeb said, rather than constantly asking the question, what could I do in F1, I might as well give it a go. At least then I would be sure. So Ben, Ed talked about the disappointment of not seeing Valentino Rossi make his F1 debut. Are you disappointed we didn't get to see Loeb race an F1 car? Yeah, I'm disappointed about both, really. Uh, they would have been phenomenal to see. I can completely get why those things didn't happen. You know, the same challenges that apply to Rossi also apply to Loeb. I mean, rally drivers are obviously incredible and we've seen Formula 1 drivers go the other way and find that difficult. There's every reason to think it would be tough for Loeb to just drop in and be competitive without proper testing and preparation, etc., having not done the junior categories, all of that. But you would have loved to see it. I mean, it's an argument for having third cars, isn't it? If the third cars had happened and it was for random stars from other walks of motorsport. Legends from other parts of motorsport. I love that. Yeah. Then you're talking about something that's definitely worth doing that adds value to Formula One. It's one off. It doesn't necessarily affect the championship in any kind of way that hurts the smaller team. So I'm now backing out of my earlier argument that third cars were a bad idea. If you could do this, then it would be really cool and definitely worth seeing. The Loeb thing was such a shame because... It was a very serious possibility. I remember working on a story, and I think at Silverstone when we got wind of it and did, and did something on it. So that one, if the super license had been forthcoming, it's one that really could have happened. Again, it would have been incredibly tough for Lower, but that one for me was always more tangible than the Rossi one. Rossi was always being talked about about maybe having a go in a Ferrari. He did some tests, etc., but he was never really going to turn his back on MotoGP to do a, an F1 thing properly. But Loeb, that, that, even that just one-off in Abu Dhabi that could have happened got genuinely possible, which is a real shame it, it didn't come to pass. And those sort of things just feel unthinkable now. It's just it's amazing that, yeah, it was, it was serious, proper test programme, proper fitness programme. It would have been so cool to see, even if he had just been eliminated in Q1 and, and run round at the back in, in 20th. I think Red Bull are quite keen on pursuing this kind of avenue. I remember going to a, a Honda run test uh, at the Red Bull ring for Mark Marquez 
to drive a, a Toro Rosso. Uh, I think it was a Toro Rosso. You lose track of the show cars, which have been painted up to be something they're not. And I remember talking to Helmut Marco, and he was so enthusiastic about Marquez doing this test and saying, yeah, we'd love to have him in Formula One if he was up for it. You know, obviously he's got his, his bike racing to do, but if he was keen, we'd pursue it. And obviously Marquez hasn't pursued it. But with Loeb saying basically, yeah, I'm up for it, let's do it. You can see why then Red Bull have run with that, because it's something that Helmut Marco in particular has a huge passion for, I think. And that's to his credit. Let's uh, let's stick with Red Bull. Uh and but sticking with something else that Red Bull were keen on that didn't happen uh, because they were being linked to a switch to Mercedes engines for 2010. Mercedes already supplied uh, McLaren, Braun and Force India at this stage, but uh, the rules were being opened up, I think, to allow a fourth supplier. Mercedes was the only manufacturer, really, that was confident it could do that. Rebel advisor Helmut Marko, who Ben just mentioned there, said the engine choice between Renault and Mercedes was the last big ticket item Red Bull needed to lock in for 2010. He said there were good arguments for both Renault and Mercedes, and he said there were facts that could not be ignored, which were that Red Bull had suffered multiple engine failures with Renault in 2019. In t- 2009 god it's so long ago (laughs) and uh while mercedes hadn't had any across its three teams ben this seems unthinkable now you can't think of really i can't think of two polar opposites more in modern f1 than red bull and mercedes and also given the success red bull enjoyed with renault over the four years that followed this moment and everything mercedes has done since then How do we even begin to work out how F1 would have looked if Mercedes had supplied Red Bull with engines from 2010? I absolutely love this question. It's a great hypothetical what if, especially when you consider they tried later in the hybrid era to do just that and, you know, got the door slammed shut. So here in this situation where it seems a bit more, you know, peaceful and there's a genuine opportunity, I was trying to work out the sequence of events. And I think, Basically, Red Bull probably do similar to what they did subsequently with Renault. They just have a bit more success beyond the V8 era because you can imagine them basically being the equivalent of McLaren in 2014 when Mercedes were supplying four teams with the new hybrid engine, except maybe they are more successful than McLaren were and you don't have this kind of Ron Dennis uh war with Mercedes over work status and him then jumping into bed with Honda. So I kind of feel Red Bull probably goes into the hybrid era in better shape and is more successful in the hybrid era than they were, maybe challenges for Mercedes for those titles that they just waltzed to. And that creates its own stress. And then maybe they have to sever ties at some stage after one or two seasons in the hybrid era. And then Red Bull was scrabbling around for a Renault customer deal like they ended up doing anyway, or the Honda deal that they subsequently took. And I feel like McLaren then probably exits the Mercedes tent earlier and probably gets into bed with Renault and maybe is as successful as they were sort of title contenders, but they let themselves down. And then they go into the hybrid era having an even worse time than they did anyway with Mercedes. (laughs) It'd have been interesting to see how Red Bull with a Mercedes engine fared in that dominant period for Red Bull. Because obviously Renault were very, very good in terms of optimising the exhaust blowing, etc. So that would have been a good little thing to compare whether Mercedes could do the same thing. I have a sneaking suspicion that with how strong Red Bull was getting, if there was a Mercedes engine switch, I imagine the deal would only have covered the V8 era 
And I could imagine Mercedes not being keen on Red Bull continuing to have Mercedes engines uh, beyond that. So it's interesting alternative uh, alternative history and how that would have changed the dynamic. But certainly it shows that the Red Bull engine troubles, which kind of started as soon as they came into F1, they've only really now been solved by creating their own engine <laughs> engine department and getting that forward backing in. So yeah, a problem that, that took something like 20 years to solve. Yeah, we might be about to hit on Possibly one of the reasons uh, this didn't happen because Braun GP CEO Nick Fry told Autosport around this time that the team now had zero worries financially for the rest of 2009 and many years to come. He said Braun's management had signed some nice contracts and that it made him smile when people speculated on if the team would survive. Ross Braun said everything was falling into place and the team's commercial picture looked healthy and he expected to be committed to F1 for years to come. What wasn't known at the time, but we know now, is that this optimism was because a memorandum of understanding had been signed in early August over an agreement for Mercedes to buy the team. Mercedes motorsport boss Norbert Haug first raised his interest in Braun uh, in May but Braun and Fry had also been talking to AirAsia and future Lotus slash Caterham boss Tony Fernandez and the Glazer family, which owned Manchester United. The memorandum of understanding wasn't a binding contract, but it was clear by this stage that, to the team's board that it was well on the way to being taken over by Mercedes. Ed, you were there witnessing the Braun GP story from its glorious start to its almost stuttering finish as they got over the line. How much of a relief must it have been for them? And if you were there in the paddock, was it becoming apparent that this was a team really running on a shoestring? Yeah, I think it was a big relief for them because while they had that great running budget from Honda, they did need some kind of long-term plan. And bear in mind, obviously, they were struggling with car development. The following year's car wasn't obviously necessarily full steam ahead on it they slashed off and in a rush so the whole team was kind of not structured properly they'd basically been papering over the cracks through the season so while they did a great job with that it was never going to be sustainable so they needed something like the Mercedes deal and in fact the Mercedes deal was probably at the high end of of what was what was they could they could aim to get because that's the ideal almost so they needed a proper stable future for it and also what a great deal for the management buyout in terms of obviously Ross Braun and Nick Fry led that. They got the team for nothing, got a big running budget, had this enormous, incredible success, then pocket a load of cash after selling the team to Mercedes before those cracks opened up. And in doing so, not only do they benefit, but it's a great platform for the whole team as well. So it's kind of the happy ending to this fairy tale. But there could have been a much harder ending for it. I, I guess given how well they were doing, someone was always going to pick it up. But at least with Mercedes, a car manufacturer, yeah, car manufacturers and F1 can be shaky sometimes. But it was a proper continuation plan. So it's the final box that they needed to tick. And while Mercedes were secretly on their way to becoming an F1 team owner at this stage, at the other end of the F1 pecking order, the new teams that were aiming to come into F1 in 2010 were dealing with the potential hammer blow of the budget cap rules they signed up to being ditched by F1. This meant that the $40 million budgets they'd been promised they could run on, with various technical advantages given to them to make them competitive with the big spending teams, were now out of the window. Those behind the Campos entry that would eventually become HRT were really unhappy with this. 
Daniele Odetto, who'd helped run Super Aguri as a small team previously, told Autosport that the team's investors had already put the money up to support the 40 million budget and they were upset with how things had been handled. He said the investors considered pulling out, but he and Adrian Campos convinced them to stay even if they could no longer promise the moon. He also said he would try to repeat what Super Aguri did in running as a small team and they were also relying on new cost-saving measures that the F1 teams were promising would take spending back down to the levels of the early 1990s. Ben, obviously, those spending measures never worked. You know, we had the doomed resource restriction agreement. That was never going to work. How badly screwed over were these new teams with this abandoned budget cap? About as badly screwed over as you can be screwed over, I think. I remember uh, being at Zandvoort for, and we're mentioning F3 again for the third time, for the F3 Masters that year and interviewing John Booth, who whose manor team were there and obviously were involved in you know, one of the team's uh, pitching to be in this new new era of cost capped F1 and I remember thinking well you know this stuff's been ditched surely they're all going to be all going to be furious and just try to find any way to back out and he he was not like that at all he was basically pragmatic and we're going to make it work and and crack on and I I'm presume a few teams and the ones we saw were kind of in that situation where they committed based on promises okay those promises weren't fulfilled but they were so far down uh the road they just had to keep going and try to make the best of it and you can see i mean it's obvious from what happened subsequently that they were just cut adrift they they didn't really add anything the whole thing was just a complete mess and i mean i never really got totally on board with the measures they seemed quite extreme i got the idea of you know giving teams that would run to the cap these kind of advantages but it just seemed like a a really extreme version of performance balancing, which you get in kind of GT racing and what have you. And uh, it just didn't seem like Formula One at all to me. So from the point at which they then decided to carry on rather than just go, look, this is not what we signed up to. And presumably some of them couldn't get out of it. Um, I just think it was, it was heading for disaster. And I give credit to the teams that persisted and, and lasted for as long as they did. And, you know, I remember obviously Man and Marussia as it became getting a few decent results here or there, but it was always such a scrabble. And uh, I bet Tony Fernandez with his operation, I bet he wished that uh, Fry and Broad made a different decision and gone with him rather than Mercedes. Yeah, he was also uh, he also suffered a double blow from that because he thought he was going to get Petronas sponsorship for the team that he did have, but obviously that went with Mercedes in the way. But I digress once again. But the thing that did surprise me is why these teams were so confident that budget cap would stay in place because, yeah, as you say, it's only the first three of them because that Caterham, or the Lotus Racing, as it was called, later Caterham, they were let in a bit later, at which point it was clear that the budget cap was gone. But I was surprised they didn't see this one coming. I remember chatting to Graham Loudon, who runs uh, Manor, Marisha, Virgin, whatever you want to call it, alongside John Booth, very sharp operator, and sort of saying, yeah, but you didn't think the, the budget cap was going to stay in place, did you? You knew that was going to fall. And they genuinely didn't. Um, I was slightly surprised the teams didn't see it coming because of the way that the Mosey FIA operated. But it certainly made things very, very, very difficult for them. So I can have some sympathy. But you've got to be very careful about what rules you're signing up for when it comes to something like F1. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Let's get into some driver market chat next. Following BMW's announcement that it was pulling out of F1 at the end of the year, Robert Kubica was looking for a drive. He told Ed that he was in the early stages of talking to teams, but that there were not many competitive seats still available. However, at the time he was being linked to Renault, and he was optimistic that he could either find a competitive team or one that would guarantee maximum effort and motivation if they didn't have a winning car straight away. So Ed, you uh, you spoke to Robert. Uh, this, that's where I got this from. Uh, how appealing would peak Robert Kubica be as a free agent on the F1 driver market? Yeah, hugely. Certainly to those paying attention. Outstanding driver. In that part of his career, he was a future world champion and obviously he should have achieved far more before his, what I think of as his real F1 career was brought to a premature end because what he did in coming back with the damage and the limitation he had after that rally crash was absolutely incredible and I'll have eternal respect and admiration for what he went through to do that and the level he got to, but he wasn't the same driver. So there was this potential world champion floating around. He was a Grand Prix winner at this stage. But he was a bit unlucky because the way the driver market played out, he was a late entry because he was going to be at BMW Sauber in 2010. But obviously BMW walked away. So it left him with these kind of middling choices. I seem to remember at the time, I'm not sure whether it was at Spa or maybe at Monza, he sort of said this off record, but he was he was leaning towards Renault. It's basically Renault and Williams were the best choices, and it was sort of 70-30 in favour of, of Renault. There are a couple of other possibilities vaguely in the mix, but I don't think he was taking them very seriously. Actually, Renault was a good choice for him, but it, it's a strange position to be in. It's kind of like if today you suddenly had one of those top drivers, I don't know, a, a Charles Leclerc or someone like that, suddenly becomes available, but everyone's like, well, actually, we, we quite like him, but we've got drivers signed up, so... Really unusual situation, that one. Another driver potentially on the market was Kimi Raikkonen. This was despite Raikkonen having a contract with Ferrari for 2010, but he was expected to be moved aside so Fernando Alonso could take his place. Raikkonen was pretty relaxed about the situation when asked about it, saying, if for some reason I'm not at Ferrari next season, that sounds like a man who knew what was going on already, doesn't it? (laughs) Uh, He said, I know I'll have a seat at another team in the paddock. It's not a problem. Other teams want me. I'm too young to retire. Raikkonen was linked to Braun and McLaren at this stage, and he eventually came very close to landing a McLaren return before Jensen Button surprisingly became available at the end of the season. But Ben, looking at the Ferrari situation, was this unfair on Raikkonen for Ferrari to just cast him aside for Alonso? Okay, they they paid him handsomely, but he's he's less than two years out from being their world champion at this stage, and they're just binning him off. Yeah, kind of mixed feelings on this one. I think 
there's some logic to it because you know Raikkonen yes he won the world championship in 2007 but you know he was slightly fortunate to do so um by 2008 Massa is the better Ferrari driver and he's unlucky himself not to win that year's championship and I think in 2009 Kimi drove better than people remember because that car was genuinely pretty awful but the level Massa had got to he was it's kind of similar I guess with like Norris and Ricardo at McLaren more recently you know you've got your high paid star who's meant to be kind of the team leader and the younger guy okay he's been at the team longer is kind of showing Raikkonen up and I can understand Ferrari having already decided look Raikkonen's not what maybe we thought he was going to be or you know he's plateaued and Alonso you know, as we now know, it was obviously even then he's an upgrade on that. I think, you know, Alonso fully motivated, you know, almost championed himself in 08, you know, hauling Renault to decent results, even though they're not at their best anymore. So uh, a theoretical Alonso Massa lineup is stronger than keeping Raikkonen around. Um, even though I think in 2009, he did acquit himself really well. And I think, yes, he probably could have had a seat at another team, but obviously the stuff we've talked about earlier, Mercedes taking over Braun and Schumacher's comeback and then wanting to start off as a German team. You know, you're re- once you in- reintroduce a driver into the market who's not really on the radar, there's always going to be this game of musical chairs where somebody ends up cast adrift. And, you know, in this case, it was Raikkonen and he went off and had a good time and then came back anyway. Also, in terms of how fair it was, he was paid a huge amount of money not to race for Ferrari, so it worked quite well. And actually he would have lost at least some of that, possibly most of it, had he had another drive in F1. Ultimately, it's a performance-based business, isn't it? And Ferrari, while they booted him out, they did pay him what he was owed. So I always think if you do that, you've at least honoured the contract in that way. So a fair treatment from Ferrari as well, just from a purely business perspective. Let's get into the race weekend then. And before we move our focus up to the front of the grid... Uh, let's talk about the eventual world champion. Um, Jensen <laughs> Button was mired in 14th after qualifying. Ross Braun said Button had been struck by his car's tyre temperature curse again as he'd not got enough heat into the tyres for qualifying. And Button said his car didn't feel right and he couldn't do anything about it. Things got even worse in the race when Button collided with Roman Grosjean on the opening lap, resulting in his first retirement of the season. Grosjean flat out said Button took him out and Button said he couldn't believe Grosjean was blaming him because the Renault driver had hit him. Ben, before we get into uh, Jensen Button's curse or whatever was going on at this point, let's just talk about the incident uh, because quite a few people mentioned it in in our Twitter responses. Who do you think was at fault here? Well, I've changed my opinion. So to begin with, I was adamant it was Grosjean's fault. I was on Button's side. It's slightly... Uh, unusual accident and also quite a difficult one to see because there's so much going on you know Raikkonen's almost gone off or pretty much has gone off having taken second place and there's a concertina effect and there's a few other incidents happening at Lacombe and I you see the onboard of Button I think he's trying to overtake uh, Kovalainen and uh, you think oh yeah so he's he's turned in and then Grosjean's just you know, lunged into the corner and clipped his rear wheel and spun him round. But if you watch Rubens Barrichello's on board, because he's slightly behind the incident, you see Button just turn sharp right as if 
there's no car there and Grosjean has nowhere to go. He's there, Button hasn't seen him and he's just turned into where there's part of a Renault thinking there's nothing there. So obviously blame usually lies with the car behind if you've taken out a car that's ahead and it was, you know, it was front left to rear right contact. But Button with a bit more awareness of all the cars around him, he didn't need to turn that far right. There was space for him to open the steering and be a bit more left and he could have avoided the accident, which I think uh, Braun alluded to when he was talking about Button's general shakiness and sloppiness at that stage of the season. So I'm going to sit on the fence on this one and say actually they both contributed to that accident. I think I broadly agree with Ben here. I thought I was going to be able to disagree stringently because obviously Grosjean sort of automatically by default seemed to get all the blame, not because he was uh, Mr. Collision Roman Grosjean at that point, as he would later have a bit of a reputation as, but because he was the young driver only in his second Grand Prix weekend, I think, and Button was the experienced one. But yeah, he was there and certainly he played a part in it, but that kind of situational awareness on first laps that Button didn't show there meant, even at the time, I felt it was unfair that Grosjean was just given all the blame for it. I think Button said Grosjean outbreaked himself, but he didn't. He was just, he was there legitimately. And it's that usual thing on first laps when there's a lot of cars around the place. When you're on, on sort of a more orthodox line on the outside and you turn into an apex, there's always that risk factor that you've got to be aware of. So I wouldn't say button should have been given a massive penalty for it or anything but it certainly wasn't Grosjean steaming into him as many people seem to call it at the time this continued a poor run for button across the uh, the European summer after taking his sixth win from the first seven races at the Turkish Grand Prix he'd finished sixth fifth and seventh twice in the races that followed before crashing out at Spa Button was was trying not to to give much away in public, but he admitted that his points lead was going to get eaten away very quickly if he didn't turn his fortunes around. In Jensen's book, he said he felt like Braun had lost its way by this point of the season, and he said the team had stopped spending money on the car because their attitude was, it's not broke, so let's not fix it, which Button said was an unusual approach. He said he'd heard the team had a budget of £7 million for car development, but his manager, Richard Goddard, had been told only 700000 of that had been spent. Button said, It wasn't as though we were going backwards, just that everybody else had been catching up and we'd stopped spending money on the car. He said that while he'd been in love with the car earlier in the season, by now his relationship with it had cooled. Ed, we'll, uh, we'll look a bit more closely at Button's performances next, but firstly... Were you surprised at how quickly a car that was so dominant at the start of the season suddenly started looking so average? Yeah, I think at the time it was slightly surprising that Braun weren't able to stay a little bit stronger as the season progressed. We expected others to catch up, but perhaps the pattern was more extreme than we anticipated, probably because we didn't realise at the time quite how extreme, extremely cautious the team had to be with its money. Obviously, they were trying to eke out the budget they had until the point where they completed their sale so they were being very very cautious but obviously that lack of development is one thing but also there were plenty of developments from other teams they reacted to the double diffuser they could see some of the other good ideas that Braun had had kind of the early days of that outwash geometry with the front wings for example so they were taking their learnings from Braun and developing quicker as well plus there was the low-hanging fruit well it wasn't that low-hanging because they were quite difficult to implement architecturally but once you could make the double diffuser that's a big chunk of pace but it should be noted that the car could still win at this stage of the season not at Spa but the race is either side 
Valencia and Monza, Barrichello won. So it wasn't like they'd completely tanked and turned into a midfield team that could only get the odd seventh place here and there. Yeah, I think it to me it's a little bit similar to what we saw with Ferrari in Formula One last season. You know, they start the season with objectively the quickest car, having invested a lot of pre-resource into new rule set um, and to get ahead. And then during the season, sometimes you can just get a bit stuck. You know, Ferrari weren't running out of money in the way that Braun were, but Mattia Bonotto spoke about how under the budget cap, they weren't really sure how to spend the money correctly, but they also weren't exactly sure how to develop the car properly. So it's not always clear when you're ahead of the game, what avenues to explore. So when you add the financial pressure in for Braun, it's basically, well, we've got a head start. Let's just keep executing the weekends as best we can and hope that nobody catches up. Um, So I can kind of understand given their particular financial circumstances, how tough it was for them. And especially when you can see in the modern example, a team with, you know, the best resources on the grid uh, also coming unstuck in a similar way. Button felt that the team had eased off the gas, but he admitted in his book that the reasons for his struggles may well have been partly psychological. Ross Braun said in his book, Total Competition, maybe the team did or maybe Jensen did, but it all got a bit wobbly. We had this championship almost within our grasp, but then we underperformed in the middle of the year. I think some of it, by his own admission, was Jensen feeling the pressure. In Nick Fry's book, he quoted Button's engineer, Andrew Shovlin, who said the team didn't understand enough how to help Jensen. And Shovlin added, Jensen knew deep down he wanted the championship more than anything, but he didn't know what to do to get it. Fry said the elephant in the room was eventually addressed when Felipe Massa gave an interview in Brazil where he said Button was choking. Fry added, we'd been blaming everything except our number one driver, but Jensen was cracking under the pressure. There's no doubt that he had tightened up, especially in qualifying. Ben, how delicate were things looking for Button at this stage of the season? Do you think he was on the verge of choking? Yeah, I think even at the time you could see that he was, you know, even though he was denying it, you could he was feeling the pressure, you know, of that weight of expectation that this, this should be the year that he wins the championship. You know, he's he started the season with this car advantage. You know, he knew from the first laps of testing that the Braun was going to be capable. Uh, it's It started incredibly well and it's looking good. And then all of a sudden, everyone's catching up. They're out developing you. You know, you're bound to tighten up a little bit when it's your first time in that situation. Um, and you can see from the pattern of performance, you know, Barrichello, who you know, very handy driver, of course, and very quick, that he's he's comfortably behind Button for the most part of the first period of that season. And then during this phase, he just starts to more regularly out-qualify Jensen and generally perform a bit better. And he's not really under the same level of pressure. So yes, I think certainly there's the psychological factor with Button. And I think also playing into that is the circumstances around the kind of driver we now know he was. Um, I remember doing an interview with Andrew Shovlin subsequently for an a in-depth button feature in Autosport magazine. And he spoke very clearly. And in contrast to what he said in the quote you mentioned there, Glenn, about not knowing how to help Jensen, that Jensen was a driver that you always had to fix the oversteer. It was all about the rear of the car. If the rear was unsettled, Button couldn't drive the way he wanted. I think in this race weekend, he mentions how the car feels nervous. So you can imagine 
the engineering team are just dialing in more rear end, trying to stabilize the back. That produces understeer. That means he can't warm up the front tires. So I'd imagine he was at this stage of the season getting locked into a cycle of, I can't drive with the rear end like you want it to be. Therefore, I need you to give me some stability there. And then I'm not getting the front tyre temperatures. So therefore, I'm not nailing the qualifying laps. Very similar to what we saw with Sergio Perez in the Red Bull last season. Although that car was obviously evolving in a way that this Braun wasn't. You know, the, the car suited him very well at the start of the season. And then as soon as you had to try and make it a little bit more pointy, a little bit more nervous, a little bit more on the nose, he couldn't drive it the same way. And I think you see a similar thing here with Button. And of course, that fed massively into the fact that he was probably struggling a little bit just to have that sort of mental strength to push through it because everything's kind of against you. I remember we did a, I remember writing a piece in Autosport, a top story that was probably the week after that was all about the pressure reaction that, that Button was feeling. And I know Button wasn't delighted with that. I mean, it wasn't just that. There were a lot of stories that go talking about it. And, and he's right not to be because obviously he's very publicly trying to kind of push through this and get that ultimate goal. So it's tough. And I always say, Elite sport is a mental thing. That mental side is so, so important. And that's the first world championship battle he'd gone through. So it was uncharted territory for him. But I think it just created this perfect storm for him of those car struggles, the car getting fundamentally a bit less competitive, people starting to point at him and say, oh, hang on a minute, you're struggling a bit. And I remember there were media sessions where he was being asked about this. Certainly, after, I remember there was one quite frosty one. It might have been at Monza after this where... There was one at Spa where the uh, I think the um, the newspaper pack sort of got on his case and he took it really badly. There was a question like, do you really want to win this championship, Jensen? And uh, I think he got a bit sweary. I don't, I don't know if you've <laughs> seen that or heard about that one. Yeah, it sounds familiar. So I may have been in that one. Um, it's difficult to exactly place it. But yeah, certainly that's entirely in keeping with the kind of thing I, I remember. I, I mean, I'd... Uh, Certainly, I mean, Fleet Street certainly at that time could be quite aggressive with that sort of thing. So that sort of thing wasn't directed at us. But yeah, he was certainly finding it difficult. Obviously, more and more questions. How do you answer it? Because really, the answer he's given is, yeah, I'm trying. I just don't really know how to do it. But of course... Yeah, you answer it by driving about faster. Well, that's all you can do. And then (laughs) if you don't drive about faster, you get frustrated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you have to remember that back into the season was very very difficult if you look at his last 11 races the point there's only there's, were there two podium finishes in that period there was one at Monza certainly and I think got the podium at Abu Dhabi maybe so well, that was after he won the championship so it was a real long hard struggle to get that over the line and it's difficult of course it's difficult there are a lot of factors against him and uh, I think we should actually say he did well to in the circumstances he was in, you know, fight and battle and get those sort of drip feed of points to keep himself ahead of the game. Yeah, and I think he he looked like a much more rounded driver, more comfortable in his own skin in the years after that and probably was looked much more accomplished at McLaren alongside Lewis Hamilton because he'd been through the challenges of 2009. But let's move up the order. And there was a huge shock in qualifying then when Giancarlo Fisichella put his Force India on pole position. And for those of you who didn't watch F1 back then. You perhaps know Force India, Racing Point, Aston Martin as the kind of, can be the plucky midfielder who's capable of the odd upset. This is back when Force India was still very much a backmarker. They'd never scored a point in F1. And before Spa, Fissi Keller's average starting position for the season was 17th. Uh, he'd been quick all weekend at Spa. And this had amusingly led to him earlier in the weekend, declaring that he thought Force India could get through to Q2. <laughs> he did a bit better than that um, 
He countered suggestions that he'd been fueled light in Q3 to take pole by uh, pointing out he was quickest in Q1 and fourth in Q2. So while in every sentence after taking pole, he seemed to say a variation of we did not expect this. He also was keen to point out the speed was genuine. Ed, we had we had quite a mixed up grid at Spa. We had teams like BMW and Toyota were also right up the front. But why was why was it so mixed up and why were Force India suddenly so quick, really from nowhere? Yeah, it was a very interesting one. I think it was one of those weekends where a lot of people struggling with tyre temperatures as well. So it was quite tricky conditions. So that can sometimes make it harder. Plus, it was a season where the performance gaps were very tight anyway. So little swings here and there can suddenly make a, a big difference. But obviously... Spa fundamentally, it's an aero compromise circuit, by which I mean it's not peak downforce. You want to get that trade-off between the fast straight bits and the still quite brisk twisty bits in the middle sector. Now, the Force India was very aero efficient. They always had quite aggressive aero efficiency numbers, so good on the straights. They were also very good in the quicker corners, so that was good. So they could still carry some of that downforce because they were so aero in, they were so aero efficient and they had a quick car in the corners. And if you watch Fisichella's onboard lap, the car's turning in quite nicely. It, it's clearly responding to him very well. So that was the the kind of track circumstances that worked well. Force India obviously had that McLaren-Mercedes technical partnership. These technical partnerships are quite common now, but this was the the modern era pioneering one. It was quite a big shift. So they had Mercedes engine and then the McLaren gearbox and hydraulics, which was a, a huge benefit for them. Simon Roberts, incidentally, was there on secondment as CEO while being a McLaren employee. And they'd been pretty aggressive with their developments they didn't hedge their bets on the double diffuser. Once they knew it was out, some teams thought, well, this could get banned and not or not considered legal. But Force India got wind of the fact it probably was going to be fine. So they went absolutely all guns blazing at it. Actually, they'd half worked out the double diffuser before because they'd worked out the external geometry was legal to do it. But the problem was getting the, the kind of airflow to feed it, which is all about your definition of what's a hole, what's a fully enclosed hole, what's just a gap between things. So they didn't realise that. But they had done some of the work on the, the geometry of a double diffuser. So there was a bit to work on there. So it was race four in Bahrain. They had the double diffuser. And they'd clocked the design cube from the Braun. So they had a number of packages. They had about four major upgrade packages that season. The last one at Valencia, the race before, that was worth about seven tenths. Car still wasn't great on that type of circuit, but they were quite confident going to Spa. They actually thought Q3 was doable. Add to that, Fisichella on inspired form. Now, Fisichella was a bit erratic in terms of whether he was laser-focused or not, but he had both a competitive car, and he knew it, and a Ferrari opportunity. So he was going to be at his best. And then they did give themselves a little bit of help with the fuel load in, in Q3. He had 43 kilos as his starting load for that race, which made him, I think, second lightest in Q3. But it wasn't ridiculous. It wasn't, uh, you know, uh, uh, as Gary Anderson would say, the sniff of an oily rag in terms <laughs> of fuel. But if you do fuel correct the Spa qualifying, Fisichella was about two tenths off. So that tells you kind of where they were. So it was it was a perfect storm, but it was also down to the fact this team was making tangible progress. And it came as a surprise because we'd almost forgotten that this team was still fundamentally that overachieving Jordan team. But they'd gone through so many bad years, it kind of crept up on us. And the fact they hadn't had any results before this, I think made it such a big surprise. But then... Now, next race, Adrian Sutter was fourth, and Lietz, he might have been able to get on the podium had he finished. So, ideal for those sorts of circuits. In the race, as we know, it didn't quite work out. Fisichella got away well from pole, and he looked to have everything under control until the safety car came out for the Button-Grosjean clash and another collision 
at the same time between Lewis Hamilton and Jaime Alguersuari. That allowed Raikkonen to get a run on him at the restart and Raikkonen used Ferrari's Kurs, which Force India didn't have, to blast through into the lead. But Raikkonen had also gained ground on the first lap by charging into the runoff area at the first corner and rejoining third before passing Kubica's BMW on the run to Lekum. Raikkonen was asked about this after the race and he denied that it was premeditated. He said he tried to go the normal way, but the cars on his inside got pushed wide so he had nowhere to go. And he said if it was really quicker to be out there, people would be doing it all race. <laughs> ben, what do you think? Just of the, at this point, we're just talking about the first corner. Did, did Raikkonen get away with taking some liberties here? Yeah, I think he did. And But Formula One has allowed this to persist. You know, this kind of idea that uh, on lap one, there's so many shenanigans going on. You need to allow um, leniency with track limits and what have you. And he's just he's just played that to his advantage. I I believe him when he says it wasn't premeditated, because even watching the TV pictures back, you can see the moment where he's held up on the exit of that first corner. He's made a brilliant start. He goes around a car that's stalled, and he. He thinks, right, I'm going to launch myself around the outside. And then he just gets forced wide and they check up. And you can see the body language of his car. He's thinking, do I just stay on the brakes? Oh, no, I'm just going to go left and go round them. Just boot and it. just boot it. Yeah, boot it on this you know, tarmac runoff, runoff area. It's not there anymore, is it? I think it's, have they restored that to gravel now with the new spa changes? Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, just taking advantage of the situation as it unfolds. And, of course, that just gives him this massive launch pad run down to Eau Rouge, up through Eau Rouge, using the Ferrari curves as well. And then... You know, he's gone from like fifth to second comfortably by the time you get to the comp. Then he nearly goes off uh, and almost gets rammed by the car behind, which I think was Heidfeld. Uh, so he's quite lucky, actually, that having done this and set his race up, that he, he survives. And then, of course, you've got the Constantina effect, the crash we've talked about. And then, yeah, the subsequent race, very close battle. And you feel like, I, if I'm right, you know, Force India, their deal with McLaren, Mercedes was a bit late in the day and they couldn't they couldn't get the Kurs as part of that. So had they done, obviously there's a very good chance that Fisichella would have won the race. And, you know, it's the one the one time where Ferrari going down that route actually paid off for them because otherwise it was a pretty awful season for them. I can clarify the Kurs thing. They did have access to the Kurs and actually they did originally design the car to put it into, but they didn't put it in early on. And then they realised they were probably better off not putting the curves in and they they kind of used some of the space they'd left for it for air opportunity. So it was possible, but they didn't integrate it and that was probably for the better. The other thing I've got to add on this, the fun postscript to this is, of course, regarding the first corner spa runoff, we then end, end up a year later with enter driver steward Nigel Mansell who basically storms in and has a personal crusade <laughs> to stop all the drivers using the runoff and taking liberty at the start all the drivers complained he got some criticism they said oh it's simply not possible and then strangely enough 20 odd or 24 as it would have been in 20 uh, in 2010 of the best drivers in the world were actually able to do it properly once they <laughs> had it cracked down on so it was that as you said it was a it was a sort of the, the prevailing stewarding mentality was there was what Raikkonen took advantage of. Quite right, he knew what he could and could not do. So you you play your cards as as, as you're dealt them. But yeah, the following year, Mansell cracked down on it, and it was quite it was quite funny because he got a bit of stick for it, but he was absolutely in the right. Yeah, well done, Nigel. I uh, fully support that. 
Raikkonen said he knew that if he didn't pass Fissy Keller on the safety car restart, the Force India would be too fast to overtake over the rest of the race. But he felt that once he could get ahead, he knew he'd be able to use the Kurs to protect himself into the key overtaking zones. I think he eventually said that it wasn't so much about using Kurs on the run up to Lekoum. It was actually about using it at the end of the lap to build a gap so that Fissy couldn't catch him. Fissy Keller hounded him for the whole race, but never really looked like launching an attack. Uh, he said it was a great day for Force India, given it had never scored a point before, but he couldn't shake a bit of sadness at the fact that he could have won. He said, before we came here, if you asked us all to finish eighth would be fantastic. We are second, which is great, but considering our pace, it was possible to win. He said he was unlucky with the safety cars. He'd already built a lead of two to three seconds, which was perfect. And he was sure he would win the race easily. Ed, what was your reaction to this result? Were you pleased to see Force India on the podium? Or did you have the same nagging feeling Fissy Keller did that they should have won? Yeah, and it's nice to see them on the podium, but absolutely they should have won. But it wasn't a case of they should have won and somebody messed it up. It was just circumstances, wasn't it? I've no doubt that without the safety car and had Raikkonen not had Kurz in the car, then Fisichella, assuming he and the team executed the race properly, would have won it because the car had the pace. So it was this great, I was going to say missed opportunity, but it's a great lost opportunity. Without that Grosjean, Button, Algaswari, Hamilton, detritus up at Lacom, I think Fisichella wins that race. Fisichella then got more dream news after the weekend when he was approached by Ferrari to replace the struggling Luca Badoa as Massa's stand-in. These rumours had been swirling around all weekend, but Fisichella denied them, saying he hadn't heard anything. When he was released by Force India, which kindly let him go without asking for a fee from Ferrari, Force India boss uh, Vijay Malia said Fisichella told him he was approached in the days after Spa. Fisichella thanked Malia for letting him fulfil a lifelong ambition of racing for Ferrari and he said he hoped he had helped Force India grow up and be on the right path to achieve their ambitions. I, th I, th I think he did that. I think it's fair to say, Giancarlo, you definitely did that. Uh, he said he felt sorry for Badoa, of course, a fellow Italian, uh, because he was taking his seat ahead of their home race at Monza and he said he couldn't believe that the dream of my life comes true. Ben, we'll... Uh, We'll come to Badoa in a moment, but was this a smart move by Ferrari to make this change? And does Force India deserve credit for letting Fisichella go without a fight? I mean, it's definitely a smart move by Ferrari to make the change, but it, it's smart in the sense that they're backing out of a terrible decision to put Badoa in the car <laughs> because you know, he was woefully uncompetitive. So by this point, they're scrabbling around for anyone, <laughs> anyone better than Badoa to fill that seat. And you know, Fisichella was was performing well. You know, that spa weekend was incredible. Um, I think subsequently, you know, it just showed what a difficult car it was that he couldn't get on with it, couldn't make it work. You know, it's a dream that kind of sort of turned into a nightmare in the F1 sense, but obviously it did set him up, you know, a long relationship with Ferrari and what have you. So all's well that ends well there. On the Force India side, it's a, a nice story, a feel-good thing that, VJ Malley has been so generous and let Fisichella go to Ferrari for free. I mean, of course, Force India had a relationship with Ferrari because they were supplied engines, I think, the previous season and the season before Malia took over. But, I mean, you know, the cutthroat world of F1, charge a fee. You know, 
Williams and Mercedes were best buddies when Nico Rosberg retired from Formula One unexpectedly, and they screwed Toto Wolff to get Valtteri Bottas out of his Williams contract, and no harm was done. So I kind of feel like all the problems Force India had financially subsequently, obviously this one deal wouldn't have rectified that situation, but it would have helped if they could have got you know a bit of money out of one of the richest teams, if not the richest team in Formula One for their driver. But anyway, you know, for once... Uh, capitalism didn't win in Formula One. Yeah, I feel a little bit harsh criticising someone for for doing the right thing, but I was surprised when I saw the VJ quote saying, uh, we've just released him. It's like, come on, it's Ferrari, get some money out of them. Uh, Badoa didn't take the news of being dropped after two disastrous races very well. He blamed the media, saying they don't understand how much harm they can cause, and he said they had played a fundamental role in him being dropped. Uh, couldn't have had anything to do with the fact that he tugged around at the back. Uh, as for his struggles to get anywhere near the pace, he said he was happy to realise his dream to race a Ferrari, but it had come two years too late, as the testing ban meant he was no longer driving the car as much as he had been in his role as a full-time test driver in the past. He said in the past he'd compared well with Ferrari's race drivers because he was in the car all the time, but now he had his dream chance... Uh, which came in the worst period for me because it is 10 months since I last drove an F1 car. Ed, I know uh, you're an, an admirer of Badoa in general. In this in this 2009 scenario, do you have sympathy for him? Yeah, I'm contractually obliged to have some sympathy for Luca Badoa and bring back V10. So, yeah, you have to have some sympathy because he was a very capable driver. And he's right that the timing was very unfortunate with that testing ban. He was an F3000 champion as well. He had a good body of work in F1 in that unholy trinity of bad market teams, Minardi, Forti Corsa and Scuderia Italia Lola. So, And I actually thought he was a perfectly sensible choice. I thought he'd have dropped in and, and done fine. We weren't expecting him to drop in and be stunningly quick and winning or anything, but he thought he'd be a safe pair of hands and Ferrari did as well. So it's a bit of a shame he's remembered for that Ferrari disaster. It's not helped again by the fact that field was so compressed that year. 2009 is actually one of the closest sort of full field spreads in F1 history, he was 1.8 seconds off the, the outright pace in Q1 at Spa. So if you do that in a Williams at Silverstone in 1992, you're still second on the grid and fractionally quicker than Ricardo Patrese was. <laughs> but Badoa did crash in Q1 as well at the end of it. So yeah, it was sort of a just reward for his service and it was just asking a little bit too much. The car was tricky to drive. But I do also think that for all the complaints about the media, etc., Badoa won't look at that and think, actually, I did myself the full justice there. Sometimes you get these opportunities that are very, very difficult, where you don't have the ideal preparation, etc. And I always, it, it's the kind of the cometh the hour moment, isn't it? It's like, right, you've got a chance. It's not easy, but you've got to take it. We saw someone like Kamui Kobayashi do it later that season when he got in the Toyota. Or recently, we saw Nick De Vries do it at Monza in the Williams. Not ideal, but you've just got to make it work. So... Yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame he's remembered for that bad Ferrari stint. It's a shame that he's got that record for 50 races without a point. But yeah, I guess we just take the positive that it was nice that he got to race a Ferrari a couple of times in Formula One because not many people get to do that. Yeah, but it wasn't nice, was it? It was, it was the opposite of nice. A dream come true, but a complete nightmare as it turned out. I, I feel like Ferrari made a mistake, maybe the romantic decision to put you know, their loyal Italian test driver in the car to race. But he hadn't raced for years. And testing is one thing, but it's not the same as, you know, being in the fire of competition. 
So I can understand why Genet was a bit put out because he'd been in Formula One for you know much more recently and was still racing actively. You know that was you know if you're being unimaginative, that was clearly logically a better choice than putting Badur in who hadn't raced for years. Did Genet win Le Mans that year? Was he in the winning car? I th- think you're right. Yeah, yeah, he was. It was that year, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. I mean, come on. You know what? What were Ferrari thinking? And then you know, if you're not going to go down that route for whatever you know crazy reason, you know, try and find somebody you know who's younger, up and coming, you know, on the cusp of F1, or or has been in it more recently. You know, we Ed mentioned De Vries. You know, he was he's got his F1 break now, and he was in lots of different cars last season, of course, before he got his chance with. Williams, but he was active and, and up and coming still, you know, but Doe was, you know, he hadn't raced since 99, had he? So, uh, you know, I just think that was a crazy choice, albeit, you know, a romantic one. But we should also note that Fisichella got in that car, an active F1 driver with continuous body of work in F1, he'd almost won the race, and he didn't score a point in that Ferrari. It was a tricky one. So I'm certainly not saying Badoa acquitted himself well, or, and I'd agree, Janae was the more pragmatic choice, but, uh, yeah, I think it was a very, very difficult set of circumstances, ultimately, and perhaps that was underestimated, just how difficult it was at the time. The one piece of sympathy I have for Badoa is that I do think he should have been given a chance in 99, you know, when, when Schumacher broke his leg. I, I felt, um, obviously, Mikasalo did a, a good job in some of those races, um, but I, that felt like that was the time that Badoa deserved the shot. And I think Ferrari's excuse was, oh, we don't want to pull him out of Minardi. That Minardi would have managed it. It'd have been fine. Uh, anyway, let's crack on. Another story building up during the Belgian Grand Prix weekend and after it was speculation around Toyota's future. So while BMW had already announced it was pulling out, Toyota's future was undecided at this stage and, as I say, was subject to speculation. The team didn't have a budget approved for 2010 at this stage and it was rumoured that that budget was going to be cut significantly if the team continued. Jano Trulli was expected to leave the team, while Timo Glock's option for 2010 hadn't been taken up by Toyota yet. Glock said the situation was a bit of a worry, and Trulli said that beyond his own future, the most important thing is that the team continues because there are a lot of people working here with families to support. In the race, Trulli was devastated to damage his front wing at the start because he'd started alongside Fisichella on the front row and he felt he could have bagged a really strong Result, things weren't much better for Glock. He was running fourth when he suffered a fuel rig problem at a pit stop that dropped him out of contention. Ed, Toyota eventually pulled out. Them and BMW were kind of grouped together in this you know, 2009 disappearance. Was there a vibe here already, though, that it was probably heading that way? Yeah, there were already mutterings about it. The prevailing economic conditions were not good. Toyota were clearly absolutely the type of manufacturer team that were in the the danger zone for pulling out. The team was already working towards a kind of reduced budget continuation plan. I think they'd have probably ended up with Buemi and Kobayashi driving for them the following year had that one happened. But yeah, they felt they needed a win to try and change their destiny. They felt a win could do it. And obviously everyone remembers... uh, Bahrain that year where they started at the front and everyone thinks as well of Jano Trilli's later second place at Suzuka that could have could have been a win with a, with a bit of a different uh, way it played out but Spa was also the, the good chance because not only was there that first corner problem but at the launch he had a bit of an electrical glitch that made him slow as well he felt he could have won that race Force India were hoping he'd slot into second and hold everyone up to help them win but yeah it was just all over effectively after a few seconds of the race 
So lastly, let's move on just to the start of what became an absolute bombshell story in F1 history. Uh, because it was the Spa weekend that the FIA put the wheels in motion to expose the uh, the crash gate uh, saga. I hate gate on the end of things. Um, you know, what's wrong with just like calling things a scandal and that? Anyway, uh, 2008 Singapore Grand Prix. Uh, I always called it the, yeah, the, the crash scandal. <laughs> and uh, Renault's manipulation of the race to get Nelson Piquet Jr. to crash deliberately to help Fernando Alonso win. We're barely going to scratch the surface here. Uh, We're purely going to focus on how we got to this stage and what happened at Spa. Then FIA President Max Mosley said in his book that he'd heard rumours earlier in the year about what Renault had done. But as the FIA didn't have any evidence, they decided to leave it alone. Then Renault fired Piquet Jr. And his dad, three-time world champion Nelson Sr., went to Max and told him what had happened in Singapore. Max said the FIA would need a sworn statement from PK Jr., but he knew they needed more evidence as well. And the lawyers involved said that because of the severity of the claim, the FIA would need proof to the criminal standard of beyond reasonable doubt, rather than a lower burden of proof that you could get away with in a civil case. So the FIA devised a plan to call members of the team in for questioning over the spa weekend without any prior warning. Mosley wrote in his book... It was essential that it should be a surprise. If the team had been forewarned or we had sent someone to the factory to ask questions, it would have been easy for everyone involved to deny all knowledge of any sort of plot. The idea was to question members of the Renault team separately before they were alerted or had an opportunity to confer. We made sure no one in the paddock knew what was going on except race director Charlie Whiting. The ploy succeeded and the interrogators got the necessary additional evidence. From that point, Renault were quickly charged and, well, all hell broke loose. But that's a story for another time. I'm going to ask you both about this. We'll start with you, Ed, as you were in the paddock, you were covering F1 at the time. All we're focusing on here is the initial breaking of the story. What did you think when you first heard that Renault were going to be charged for this? Well, I can't remember the exact moment that it was revealed in my initial reaction. Obviously, I've got some writings from the time, but it did become very clear very quickly how serious this was. I think Renault probably thought that they were home and free on that one. Obviously, everyone could see at Singapore the year before that it was a bit suspicious, but you know, circumstantial evidence doesn't really mean a great deal. So... Yeah, once you could see the FIA were taking this properly seriously, this wasn't just an accusation, this was a formal process and it was going to lead to something, I think it was pretty clear that uh, that it was very, very, very serious indeed. And it became quite clear as well who the targets were. Obviously, they wanted to really get Briatori uh, for this particular one and the approach they were taking. So yeah, it, it snowballed very, very quickly from that moment because the one thing we didn't have, despite all those suspicions, was any bloody taking action or levelling a serious accusation. This was a proper process. I would uh, love to claim some kind of knowledge or proof of suspicion. But I mean, this is pre-Twitter supercharged conspiracy theory days. And, you know, watching from the outside, yeah, you know, an unusual circumstance. But, you know, Renault claiming, oh, no, it's just lucky that, it happened that way you can it's believable it's completely believable and you know if they hadn't fallen out with the pks and pk jr had been a bit more competitive they would have got away with it if it wasn't for that pesky kid so i think i would i can't remember how i reacted exactly at the time but 
I'm pretty sure I was surprised in the sense that I hadn't thought that's what happened. But it is it's also believable that a Formula One team would try, you know, to get away with this thing if they could. Because um, you look back and you think, oh, yeah, why the hell is Alonso on that strategy? Like, it doesn't really make sense at that track. So, you know, if, with the benefit of captain hindsight, yeah, it, it's, it seems obvious, right? But at the time, to me, not necessarily. I should clarify my position because I get irritated with some journalists who claim that it was obvious. I certainly, I could see the circumstances in Singapore and I was there in Singapore in 2008 were quite weird. But I basically said, well, sometimes these things do happen. Things do happen that look odd. So in the absence of any other particular evidence that made me think, well, unless something comes up, then we just accept that it's uh, it's one of those bizarre series of circumstances that looks odd when you look at it. But I think that's why when there was the formal process that was started, I thought, oh, okay, they've got something here. So that's kind of the the switch moment. But yeah, certainly up to that point, I'd never written anything accusing them of it because I I didn't have any evidence that that was the case. And I sort of said, well, perhaps it was just one of those things. So well, yeah, it was one of those uh, one of those interesting stories that it was kind of it was poised to erupt because there was all that history there. As soon as you hear it, you're like, ah, bang, okay, right, we know what's happened here. I think that was the thing for me. It, yeah, I, I didn't. I wouldn't say I was suspicious at the time of the race happening, but. It was more amazed that there are loads of things that happen where you think that's a slightly odd coincidence. Is there something going on there? And as Ben hinted at, these days, everything just gets called a conspiracy. Everything's rigged. But this was an example where you thought, oh, that's a that's an interesting coincidence. And you don't really think anything else of it. And then almost a year later, you find out that that weird coincidence was actually um, an explosive bit of cheating. That, that almost never happens. So that was the amazing thing. And for me, it's just... If you know you've made Nelson Piquet Jr. do that, even if he's having a rough 2009, don't fire him. You know, it's 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 not like suddenly it's not like Flavio didn't know that the PKs had something on him. Just just put up with it. You know, treat the guy like crap if you want to, but keep him in the car. Um, we'll pay him yeah, off. That, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, just you know, just just remember that you're only a year out. For, the, the guys helped you rob a bank. Don't then like leave him out on the streets. You know. Um, but we'll leave it there. Like I say, we could we could do another hour uh, or more about that whole saga. But that's Spa 2009. Uh, let's leave it there. One of those races that no matter how many times you watch it back, the underdog never quite finds a way to upset the odds and claim the victory, which is a which is a shame. Thanks to Ed and Ben for joining us for this one. Next time, we're heading back into the comforting arms of V10s. And for me, the comfort of 1997, as we head back to that year's San Marino Grand Prix, where Heintzeld Frentzen took his first and only win as a Williams driver. Athletic.